Welcome to Quest of the Questions, Temple Slow's podcast that explores the great and the granular Jewish myths and mysteries. I'm Terry Wonder, and I'm here with Rabbi Alexis Burke. Welcome back. This is so great. I'm so happy that we're doing this. This is our first recording since we released the podcast uh, just over a month ago. And I just want to start with some gratitude from us to all the people that have started to listen because we've gotten just uh, such a generous amount of kindness and feedback and encouragement about the podcast and about other people's questions and how much people relate to those questions and how they were like, I had that in my brain and I didn't even know I had it in my brain. It's just been floating around. I didn't know how to articulate it and I'm so glad other people did, et cetera. So I just wanted to thank people uh, for listening. How are you feeling about the feedback that we've gotten, which has been for me overwhelming? Yeah, I have. I feel the same way. I've been, you know, this was such an unknown. And as I've told people without Terry saying, you know, we should do a podcast. And then me saying, yeah, totally. We should do a podcast. And then Terry saying, okay, so let's brainstorm the topics right now. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, we're brainstorming the topics right now. That'll be fun. Let's brainstorm the topics. And then Terry's like, I'm going to be in your office setting up the equipment, you know, on Tuesday. And I'm like, oh, we're really doing the podcast? <laughs> like, you, you, we're not just talking about doing it? And that's one of the huge gifts of Terry is he doesn't <laughs> spend a lot of time talking about things we're not planning to do. So I didn't really know that about Terry at the beginning. So next thing I knew, the microphones were set up, the headphones were out, and we were doing this. He was pressing play. And so, now you're on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like having... Having an experience to be pushed out of your comfort zone is something adults don't really enjoy very much, even if we say we do, because I think we cut to a certain point in adulthood where we're like, I've earned my comfort zone. I've earned it. I I spent like I'm a parent of young adults whose developmental job it is to just continuously be outside their comfort zone to emerge from childhood and adolescence into adulthood. And then I do believe we get to a certain point in our adulthood where we're like, I'm, I think I'm good. I mean, really, I've spent well enough time doing things that make me uncomfortable or scared. And we just don't enjoy that feeling. Um, this is why we all live in North County, San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we settle into our professional lives or even our rhythmic personal lives. And I just I'm so grateful for the chance to do this. And yes, once again, for the congregation to meet us in a place where uh, we get to hear how the work we do and the actualization of Judaism touches people. And that is an enormous energizing gift. It makes us want to do more fun things together with you all and to have a chance to interface um, with Jewish life as a vehicle. And the, in this medium, which is really brand new for me. One of my favorite parts is people just coming up to me at Shabbat or wherever I run into them on campus at Trader Joe's three days ago someone uh, con- a, a community member came up to me and was like hey i love the podcast and also i had these thoughts i want to share with you and we had a whole discussion in the freezer aisle while i was like holding salmon it was so fun and we had like a full five minute discussion about one of the episodes and i was like this is exactly what we did this for people Absolutely. are thinking about it and bringing it back and discussing it with other people and it's really fun to hear that people are listening to it on planes and road trips and while they're doing dishes and taking walks and it's prompting discussions in families and and couples and friends and yes yes 
That's Especially the over the summer when people are out and about. And, and as you've mentioned, for people who have trouble with their schedules lining up with what we're doing on campus or in person or even on Zoom. I mean, if 6 p.m. on Friday is not the ideal time to make your way to the campus of Temple Solel, even though you may or may not want to celebrate Shabbat here, this, you you know, the word asynchronous has been used over and over again throughout the pandemic. We learned that word. But to be able to, while you're taking a walk with your dog or baby uh, or just in the car with your family or yourself, experience and an encounter with this. It's just, it's a huge, it, I didn't realize how much that need was there. Even though I think for years people have given us feedback around scheduling, change this, change that. And we can't chase that all the time, change this right. or that. But what we can do is make offerings where on your own time, this happens. And like you said, what's so important, I think, is that I don't want to put this out into the vapor of unknown. So when people write us about what or, or, or bump into us or come to campus and tell us or at the beach, tell us where this is landing and how it's enriching their own thoughts, that is the, that becomes the recipro- you know, the reciprocity, the mutuality of, of this encounter instead of just being like, well, we're doing this and you can have it. Right. By the way, I, I think I have to know, like, what is your favorite Trader Joe's guilty pleasure? I mean, you don't even feel probably feel guilty, do you? No, I was just going to say, I don't, <laughs> I, no I guilt. very rarely prescribe to guilty pleasures. I agree. I don't even know why I said that. I wish I hadn't. Maybe you'll edit it out. Probably not. Though. Keeping it in. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I am, I don't know. I just f- have pleasure without guilt for yes. God's sake. Yes. Yes. Like, I don't like the, I don't like guilty pleasure TV. I'm like, no, it's pleasure. Just I'm pleasure. I wish I hadn't said it. And I, w- I know you're not going to take it out, but I wish you would. Okay. <laughs> I wish, but you're not going to. I know, I know. And this is going to be like your favorite part, even though. So what's your delight at, at Trader Joe's? Uh, seasonal flowers. Oh, really? Yes. Not a food treat. No, surprisingly good, um, like surprisingly well-priced and beautiful seasonal flowers. Peonies, mm. when they're gone, I like buy them all. They smell good too. They're amazing. And our kid loves them, and Kristen loves them, and so That's we have Don's flowers. favorite flower too. Oh, really? Yeah, Don Grossman. We have f- flowers at our house all the time, so that's my pleasure—the Trader Joe's weekly pleasure. Yeah. How about you? Well, I didn't even think about the non-food options. Um, I do like the chocolate aisle. <laughs> I mean, I. D- I remember during the pandemic that uh, like at the beginning, remember when the the very beginning of the shutdown, when people were like, oh my God, we're all going to starve and pillaging the aisles of the. So I remember one really late at night, we went to Trader Joe's because I was like, I think we should grocery shop right now. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like all of us had that moment Mm -hmm. where we're like, are we the only ones not hoarding? Yep. Um, And I just (laughs) took my arm and like swept all the chocolate off the shelf with like, not just like, I mean, it was at sort of a rapid fire. We bought a 50 pound bag of rice. At Costco? From like the Asian market near our house. But we are more than halfway through, but boy, there's 50 pounds, a lot of rice (laughs) for a couple people. Yeah, but Ozzy has a good appetite. He also likes rice, but mm, you know, he's two. (laughs) Well, I just think Trader Joe's is a very fun place for spontaneous, like seasonal stuff too. 100%. Well, welcome back everybody. And if you're listening for the first time, thank you for joining us on the quest for these questions. I'm very excited about 
the question we have to start us off again on a new series. Um, we're going to have a few episodes that are coming out now in August and September in the lead up to the high holidays. Some of them will be high holiday specific. Yeah. And we will let you know when those are coming so that if you're interested in those specifically, you'll, you'll be able to tune in for that. Um, but this one, I think, is a special person, special question. You ready? Sure. Hi, Rabbi, a.k.a. Mom. Uh, since you know me pretty well, you probably know what question I might be asking. Uh, and that is, how do you square the actions of God in the Torah, which can sometimes be described as, uh, let's just say, not so mentally, uh, for instance, in the Passover story, uh, with the lessons that we're supposed to be learning, which are, you know, generally kindness and compassion and etc.? And a two-parter, if you don't believe that everything that is described in the Torah actually happened, beyond the obvious answer of, like, this is our tradition, this is our holy text, why do you think that this Torah story is the one that we learn from? Why is it important that we learn from this one when if you don't believe that it happened literally, it's just like any other book with plot and characters and themes, etc.? (laughs) (laughs) karma (laughs) did you want to tell us who that was that uh questioner well he self-identified by calling me mom in the question (laughs) Uh, hi ari (laughs) that was so nice that you asked this question and it's such a hard one such a hard one he sent it i was like woof (laughs) that is so nice i can't believe it okay So um, since he jumped in this fray, I will uh, share with you all, uh, that's my son, Ari Burke, age 20. Um, He was attending um, the Jewish day school in kindergarten was when he started. Um, My husband, his dad, Bob, was the head of school, Akiva Day School in Nashville when we lived there. And he came home from kindergarten one day and he said, who is this Adonai? <laughs> and Incredible. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know, to be honest. But I was started to worry right away that the way that they were teaching about God, uh, which I worried was probably pretty theistic, which is to say like an intervention God or a Santa Claus version of God who knows what you're doing and mm-hmm. has a very uh, strong hand in in the world. I didn't believe in that God. And I was worried that he was being taught that. And by kindergarten, I'm like, Oh no, this kid's gonna, Mm. we're going to, by sending him to a Jewish day school, we are going to undo the possibility of his, um, enjoying Judaism, which is a problem. Um, (laughs) in general and also specifically for you and, and dad head of head of school. Yeah. And I just think it was such a bold question. And, like, again, what adult and five-year-old, what person old enough to think isn't like, if you just strip everything else bare, who is this Adonai like, that you speak of, that you so often speak of in prayer and, and otherwise? And if you can't articulate who this Adonai is, or you are scared of the question, what kind of rabbi are you? <laughs> Let alone mom, because it's presented as a as like a in like a humanoid kind of for sure way. Very anthropomorphized yeah. God who frequently is less mature 
and more emotionally unregulated than all of the humans in Torah. Mm. Like, that's so a lot of people who uh, participate in Torah study regularly, hope they're listening. Hey, y'all. Um, will hear me say all the time when we talk about Torah, I talk about the character of God in Torah, the character of God in Torah. I never use Torah stories and say God did or didn't do this, or I'll say the character of God in Torah did this, um, drawn by humans. The drawn by humans. The character was drawn by humans, in my opinion. This, we're going to get, this is going to be a long one. I hope you're on a long walk wherever you are, everybody, <laughs> and, or you're cooking a gourmet meal and uh, your family, or your family's on a road trip, because... <laughs> Sit down and get comfortable. <laughs> or Drawn by humans, meaning that because people, mostly men, wrote like the, our characterization of God, it's really their interpretation of, of, the, of this God figure is what right. you're saying. Is that what you mean by that? Yes, but similar to the way all of us are interpreting God. Just some of us are not writing it down. But my favorite, one of my favorite, they're all kind of my favorite professor in rabbinical school, My one of my favorites, Dr. David Aaron. Um, he was a Bible professor who insisted that we absolutely must consider Torah literary fiction. Any other consideration is absurd. Mm. So this, this was a life-changing day, the day of this, when he spoke these words, because it felt like we had always existed in, the, in this nebulous place of like, if you really believe it, you're really a believer and if you don't, you might as well throw it in the trash can because mm -hmm. it's not true then. True, right. which is the, a big word, right? So he began to open the door to the possibility of engaging with this holy text as literary fiction, not the possibility, the necessity. And um, so what did he mean by that? Good question. First of all, you know, full disclosure, Ari is studying literature and writing for the purpose of teaching literature and writing. So like I, I, how he engages with literature and his appreciation for literature for someone who started out being like, I think this might all be baloney. Um, <laughs> it's very interesting that he's asking this question about literature and, mm. and how as human beings we engage with literature, which I add this layer to this podcast because the questioner happens to be a person who is deeply in love with literary fiction mm. and literature in general mm -hmm. and reads and rereads books all the time. He was the only one when we moved to San Diego in our family who wanted to save every single book. And then we had to get bigger bookshelves. And he then, and the reason I wasn't like, come on, let's call through this is because at any given moment he can be rereading and reading all things and, and deep, deeply diving in to the, the lessons therein, and like a fan of all sorts of other literary fictions. Did star Wars happen? Right. Does the Marvel world and all of its dimensions and explorations of good and evil and power and and courage and and all of those fundamental things that humanity wrestles with are those true? Right. Are those factual? Does it matter? So Sarah Silverman has a whole bit about the reason why people don't are like skeptical of Scientology is because it was written by a guy named Ron. <laughs> it just like seems like we're not ready for that yet. Ron. Yeah. Thanks anyway, Ron. <laughs> Theology by Ron seems like mm, we're not ready for that. But that's, that, <laughs> that's to me is such like, that is the question of like why this text that rather than others is like, what is this, you know, is it because it's age and it's lasted through all these generations? And so that we're like, we hold on to it. We claim to it because it's been so influential. You know what I mean? Right. That's so funny that the Ron, 
It's so it's hilarious because it reminds me, I had this, when I was first a rabbi, I had this argument with the senior rabbi I worked with and um, we were, they had just put in new carpet in our social hall and I wanted to do a Tu Bishvat Seder. Tu Bishvat Seder involves white wine to rosé to red wine, basically, <laughs> and it's symbolic. But the because of the new carpet in our social hall, the rule was made that we would not be having any red wine. People could not serve red wine. Wow. And I was like, let me understand what's going on here. I'm new. I'm a new rabbi. I'm new. But I just to be clear, we won't be observing the holiday because of the carpet in the synagogue. <laughs> we can't properly. Excellent. And he was like getting frustrated with me and I with him, frankly. And 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 in the in all of his frustration, he's like, I don't even understand why this is so important. This whole Tubishvat Seder was just made up. <laughs> that's what he said You're and like, i'm like let me let me hand you a book everything is made up <laughs> we've made, made up. everything up i mean what is not give me an example of a jewish practice rabbi that has not been made up by someone or some combination of someone's I from a story so yeah i mean it was like the last straw argument he's like well you have to take it to the board i'm like happily <laughs> Guess uh, I'll let everybody made, can write in and guess all made up. Guess whether or not this Tubishvat Seder happened. What it implies, it also like their their question, Ari's question implies a binary, right? Uh, which is, I think, the literary fiction really creates a spectrum, right? It's like either true or not true, right? Fiction or nonfiction, or yeah, originalism or, or nothing. Yeah, immutability and divinity or worthlessness. You know, right. just 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 whatever. The way in which many people say like some people believe in religion and some people believe in science right as if those things are not intertwined and although oh god beautiful now you're ways really making me <laughs> you can't see this but she just threw a book <laughs> just a roll eye roll <laughs> i think uh the literary fiction thing is so crucial and when he dr david aaron opened that door he didn't just say that and and just drop his mic he said it and explained why literary fiction should be the most endearing and enduring way to think about Torah. And he said that, think about the books you've read that you remember that live on your bookshelf, like I was describing Ari's, that you have the temptation to read and reread. Think about the books that you've read that even right from the beginning, you're like, oh, I hope this never ends. It's so good. You can tell right away when you start reading mm -hmm. it. You're like, oh no, mm -hmm. this is going to end and I'm going to be so sad. Mm -hmm. Or books you've read that when you come to the last page and you've read all the acknowledgements and you read about the publisher and the typeface and mm -hmm. there's no more pages left, you just wish you could open it and start it again. Think about those books. That is literally Torah. That we don't, there's no light of day between the last word we read and the reading it again. We're right. like, I got to read this. Wait a minute. I got to read this again. This thing. Mm -hmm. Whoa. I had a friend in rabbinical school, Rabbi Jonathan Blake, who would always take out his Torah. We, we walked around with them in our backpacks. Surprise. And he'd hold it up and be like, have you read this? This is such a good book. <laughs> this is a, this really, if, you, if you've never read this, you really should. I mean, it just, because it, it was like, this is a beloved book. And those books that I'm describing that make you do that. And by the way, by the way, I can ask this question of like three-year-olds. We've talked about mm -hmm. the little ones before, like how profound they are. And I'm like, does anybody want to read the same book every night? 
Do you ever ask your parents? Do you ever keep going to get the mm. same book? Even though there's other books that on your bookshelf. That is my life right now. Yeah. It's the same mm. one. That you, that you have such a favorite that as soon as it's over, have you ever asked at the end of a book that your parents have read you again? And they're like, yeah, hello. Yeah, they look at me like, that's what we always do. Yes. That's what I've been reading Happy Hanukkah Corduroy five times a night for about two weeks right now. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter that it's not Hanukkah. No, it does not matter. It's not seasonal. No. Unlike Trader Joe's. <laughs> so just to circle back to the, the literary fiction thing, his one last point that was really important is that and this one always gives me like goosebumps. He said, you know, everybody wants to know if it happened. It's like that's the barometer of its authenticity and necessity or value. And he's like, what is the document? What is the written document we use to record what happened? Like the newspaper. Mm. <laughs> At the time, it was the 90s. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the phone. He's like, the newspaper, is, it's, it's, its whole existence is to make sure that it, as accurately as possible, records what happened. Mm -hmm. That's the document. You get it every day. And what do you do with yesterday's newspaper? You toss it. Yeah. I mean, you, he, he said you lined the birdcage with it. <laughs> I mean... It, it's not, we want Torah to be that, but how, what we, how, the way we treat a document that is intended to record what happened, it's like that's fleeting. But, but a document that records why humans do what they do mm. and explores that through written narrative and parable and, I mean, just story. Mm -hmm. Tell it. I want to tell you a story. This also like, comes back to your, like the character of God uh, framing because in a newspaper, it is so susceptible to who writes it and who publishes it. Right. Oh, people are always accusing it of bias. It's not factual enough. It's right. like nothing will ever be factual enough for us. Mm -hmm. But, but, but even a thing that totally aspires to be as factual, even with bias, like, right. One professor used to always say that every, Every translation is commentary too. Like mm -hmm. e like every translation anybody ever does is like, well, this word is funny. I'm right. not sure exactly. I want to convey something, but I want to convey what I think it conveys. So every yeah. translation already is a commentary, an interpretation. So people who need it to be like, is it as accurate? Well, what does that even mean? Accurate to what? What is it trying to be? One of the most powerful experiences of Torah study that happened again when I was in seminary would be like, what was the intent of this document? The mm -hmm. way we've decided to, you know, um, I'm a huge fan of the Indigo girls. So, um, I once heard an interview with them where people were talking about what exquisite lyricists they are really poetic mm -hmm. and they will not answer a question about what it means. Oh, they will not. They're like, it's up for you, the listener. Yeah. To they're decide. like, I can tell you what I intended, but why? Well, and the interviewer's like, because I'm super interested, okay? Because <laughs> like, I mean, you wrote it. You wrote it, and I want to know. I mean, we're, we're curious. Mm -hmm. And I forget if it was Amy or Emily. That's like, it, it doesn't matter for you what mm -hmm. I felt. And of course, I, I, this is such a memorable interview because I'm like, it matters for me. Like I was going to say, I think I totally disagree with that. I think it does <laughs> matter my, for most fans that are listening to that interview. They're like, yeah, I want to hear. But... But similar to Torah and the way like 
it's possible that, I mean, there are a couple of, we all have music in our lives that we listen to over and over again, that like in a certain mood, it's going to be the Indigo Girls. <laughs> the the soundtrack of my coming of age mm-hmm. is that. If I want to be transported to that feeling of a combination of comfort and challenge and uh-huh. anger and, and joy, it's them. Um, An album specifically? I mean, I just they all had a certain point, uh-huh. you know, but lots of songs that were different. I mean, anyway, yeah, they, they all... Oof, Swamp Ophelia probably. Uh, but awesome. if you if you force me. But I think that the desire to to revisit the feeling, the themes, the lessons, the comfort, the challenge is what Torah is in our lives. And the sooner everybody can take a deep breath and call it literary fiction mm-hmm. and and like I'll never forget to remember Newsweek magazine. Mm-hmm. We used to have a subscription to Newsweek magazine in the 90s. And I remember once that the cover was like that, that a, a shard of Noah's Ark was found. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Wow. I'm, I just remember I was in rabbinical school at the time and I'm like, oh, gee, what? That is this excellent. is so irrelevant. But because people are looking for evidence, evidence and like, yes. see, he did happen. Right. The, God did to ask Noah to build the ark. And here it is. I found a piece of that's, it. Well, that's what people do when they point to the pyramids. They're like, no, they're or right the there. Wall in Jerusalem. The, right. Gosh. The wall. Um, a friend of mine who I'm sure, you know, Rabbi Brad Greenstein, he what I, he was one of the people that keyed me into getting into text study at all. Like his way of, doing text study made me really interested in it for the first time. Mm. And one of the phrases he used is you say the character of God and he calls it the mystery of the universe, especially when he's talking to people in their twenties, right? Which is the context in which we were working together, working with people in their twenties. Mm. I love that. And in that framing, it just like it, you could feel ease in the room, right? Mm. Like I remember being on a retreat with him, 35, 20 somethings from all over the country in Canada, uh, all different kinds of beliefs and denominations and, and skepticisms and we sat down to do this text study and there was like this kind of like um hum before of everybody would be like mm, i don't know how this is gonna go or all of it and he was just like all right it's time to go see what the mystery of the universe is up to today and that's how we reference god he didn't say god and sometimes he would say god but he would always bring it back to that and it just put people at ease because it was less about uh the definitive and more about the exploration and i still think about that all the time today and I've passed that on to many people that I've, I've talked to also. Yeah. When you are thinking about, you mentioned earlier that you don't believe in like the theistic version of God who's interventionalist and um, omnipresent in that way or, or manipulative of the world. Or just rageful the way that what already described mm-hmm. in the Torah, like that, those stories, like the specific one where, I mean, the, the song of the sea, when we have Shabbat Shira, which usually, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, chapter 15 of the book of Exodus, when, when we get to that and it's such a beautiful cantillation and, and we sing the song of the seas, Sus is one of the lines in it. It's beautifully chanted, but it means horse and chariot got hurled into the sea. <laughs> like we're singing it, but it's like what we were crossing on dry land and God's literally taking God's 
the character of God is taking God's uh-huh. character of God arm and hurling Egyptian horse and driver into the sea. What did the horses do? I mean, like what kind of, who's mean to horses? Okay. That, like that's the question like Ari's asking. Right. Horrible, it's just only a terrible human being would hurl a horse. They're just trying to help. That's all horses have ever done in this world is try to help and look at you with their big, beautiful eyes. It, it, horses inspired Martin Buber to think mm-hmm. about the I-thou relationship that characterized God generations mm-hmm. after God, this same God, hurled that horse into the sea, according to our tradition. Mm-hmm. So Ari's asking a great question of like, how does this make any sense? Like, this whole thing doesn't hang together. Right. And that is true. The whole thing doesn't hang together because it wasn't a newspaper. And stories of foundational stories are not the same stories we tell later. They build, and we have to be very open to the fact that foundational stories have aspects to them that are so ancient and yet so relevant. Do we not, do we not ever wish for the demise of our enemy? Like mm. thousands and thousands of years ago, um, our ancestors defined our victory, our triumph as the defeat of our enemy. Mm-hmm. Has no one of this generation ever even had that thought? I, I don't believe time. you. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Mm. We've had the thought. We're like, let's let's watch the bad guys lose. Yep. Let me see that. We love that. Let me watch certain things unfold and hope that somebody finally gets their comeuppance. Yeah. So the Egyptians tortured us for generations. Our God sets us free and hurls all the pursuers <laughs> into the sea. Yay, Miriam, let's get out the tambourine. I mean, like that's a that's a satisfying story. Yes. And very. it's not like, I mean, even if I say like it's so ancient, I'm like, I continue to feel like the magic of Torah for me is that I can be wrestling with something. Just a thought, just as walking through the world day to day. I can be wrestling with something. I can open this week's Torah portion and find some mirror of that mm. wrestling. This week. Every time when people are like, how do you prepare for Torah study? I'm like, I open it and exactly what I'm worrying about is addressed. Mm. It's like an oracle. Why? Terry, I don't it know why. It keeps surprising you. Yeah. And In that way. I, so to me, I don't know why that happens, but my spirituality is deeply connected to the, the, the 100% uh, assurance that that's going to happen. I don't have that with any other book, even some of my very favorite literary fiction. I wonder how many people have even like in our community and Jewish community in general have like spent the time with it to really even know if that happens for them too. You know that. Yeah. I mean, some people's, some people's connection to Judaism is not text study, but I imagine that there's, I found that in myself of like studying with Brad for the first time of like, Oh, there is, there's a lot here for me and I didn't realize Mm. it, you know? And I think that's part of the, the fun part of, uh, and the, you know, the really surprisingly meaningful part of discovering the mystery in the universe a little bit more. Yeah. Well, and, and there was for sure. And I think, um, Sometimes I think people's belief about what they should or shouldn't feel about Torah to Ari's question, like I'm supposed to, am I, would I be really, uh, would it be really much better if I just like believed this, like I believe Mm -hmm. a story to be true or, 
or would I, I happen to feel like people can be released into much more joyous and as I like to say, recreational Torah, mm-hmm. if, if we let go of like, well, God did this. And I'm like, no, we tell a story about God doing this. We tell a story in which our victory, um, God is on our side. Mm -hmm. And you know what's funny? I'll frequently say, like all of Torah is basically like God is on our side. All the violent stuff too is Mm -hmm. like, there's a war, but God's on our side. God's going to fight the war for us. This is still what we say now. Yeah. But yeah, I was just- To a fault. Right. I mean, I think we say like, um, I don't know. All the people on the planet have always tried to kill us and we're still here and we're really successful um, collectively. So I don't know. Is God on our side? <laughs> like that mystery of the universe to mm-hmm. use that, like that's a head scratcher. That's a head scratcher. I mean, that's, a, that's into a different zone of, of very careful conversation, but like, our foundational story is like people are always going to try to kill us, but God's on our side. That's weird. Except what that, I mean, mm-hmm. like it's been a weird journey for Jews. What do you think about the cliche that people say of like, and when you were talking about belief and made me think of this, the cliche when people say like, you can't prove that love is real, but you believe it's real. And I feel the same way about God. Do you, do you prescribe to that? Like, does that make sense for you? Sometimes, I mean, most spiritual things make sense to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then something will come along and be rattle the cage, you know, right. of my existence, just like everybody where mm-hmm. we think we have a worldview. And then on a really interesting, good day, I'd say something is like, well, am I right about everything? Anything? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Do I understand anything? Love is like a really good analogy. I love the analogy for God. And people talk about like, I know we've had a couple of podcasts on issues around mourning and death rituals, but like most people talk about near death experiences. If you do any research on near death experiences where all of a sudden they feel like they're crossing to another plane Mm -hmm. and all they feel is love and peace. And like Judaism teaches about proximity to God as being, you know, in this peaceful, loving realm. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, maybe we're right. But, but as Ari would say, well, that doesn't square at all with Torah then. I mean, what are you going to say about that? I mean, that's the only problem is like, cool. But what are we going to do with this Torah? Right. But also, I think one of the traps that um, we fall into when we're trying to be like Torah is the explanation uh, for like Judaism and its existence is that like, it is a finite amount of words and story. So like there's so much outside the bounds of that, that didn't make it in those books, you know, right. It was, it's in the prequels or the sequels, but we didn't, you know, it's in the spinoff, but we don't have those ones. Yeah. The, the prequels. <laughs> you know? I mean, so. I, I remember the definition there's, there's books of the Apocrypha it's called. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like, I don't really understand what the Apocrypha is. And I remember one of my professors saying it's, it's books that didn't make it into the canon of Tanakh you know, Torah prophets and writings. I'm right. like, so every single book, cause like every book that's not in the Tanakh is apocrypha. And they're like, Oh no, 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 no. You know, it's the books like it, but that aren't it. Right. I'm like, what's like it. You know, like everything sounds like that at the historical period, 
They're like, okay, stop. How, yeah, what fits into this, the Torah cinematic universe? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what is exactly? Well, it's apocrypha. There are things that are like adjacent. Torah adjacent. Tanakh adjacent. Okay. Well, uh, so also stories that are literary fiction that come to tell, a, that, that look like historical accuracy, but that can't be, that have you know, some magical realism and splitting of seas, miraculous experiences and God who can get mad. That's apocrypha, but it didn't make it in. I think by the end of the conversation, I was annoying him. (laughs) Well, Ari, thank you so much for sending in your question. I really appreciate it. And it was super fun to hear you on the podcast. And and what was the second part though? I know we're like getting ready to conclude. Why, why this text? He was asking why, why, I mean, why this or why bother with this? I I think... I think it was like, why this one? Yeah. I mean, I think just that's actually because this is ours. Like, for him specifically, I'd say, well, why did you fall in love with Star Wars and Marvel? Like, and and, and his Dark Materials, which is another mm-hmm. series he just mm-hmm. loves to the point of having, a, you know, a tattoo of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, what it's ours and it works. How do I know it works? Because we're still reading it. And on Shabbat morning, which I invite all who are listening, you know, our Shabbat morning Torah study will explore this every single week. And those are really smart people, really fascinating people. And that's, that's who comes every week to have conversations about this. Not people who are like, I'm just uh, having some blind faith in an old book. Like that's not who those people are. And so you might imagine if you're listening and you've been at Temple Salah for a long time, like I see Torah study in the weekly email, but I'm like, oh, that's not for me. But like, isn't it? How do you know? And what would you explore if you and learn? And and would it be less mysterious? Mm-hmm. And I, the thing I love about like the mystery of the universe as a characterization of God is that works really well for my personal theology. And I'm grateful for the turn of phrase that you offered and through Brad. But um, I sometimes think Torah is the most raw and real stripped down version of our humanity and our belief about at that point and some other points what we wish God was on our behalf or in general, like just the stronger version of our ally but that can really finish the conversation um, and, and flatten those who need to be flattened <laughs> Egyptians or otherwise uh-huh. in the story. I mean, it, it's fascinating. Like why bother with it is a question that can only be answered once you are bothering with it, mm-hmm. whether it's, I, I think it's hilarious. It's playful. I mean, those who've studied Torah with me before know, I think the way it's written is often so funny. Mm. I mean, I love humor in general. So people do not think the Torah is, that is it's not funny. A it's very funny. Are, they don't think it's a dramedy. You know? It is. It's, it's hilarious. God is funny, snarky. The characters are all snarky, tantrumy and, and finger pointing, blaming things that we do every single day are recorded in Torah only in, in, in a delicious combination of hilarious and, and elegant with gravitas and rich fascinating humor Mm -hmm. dark and light sweet and spicy and it is so fun to study and i think because a lot of adults feel like here's what happened in their lives 
They went to religious school. They were taught the stories. They came into their adolescence around their B'nai Mitzvah and they realized the stories can't be true. And they stopped ever asking the question again. Just when it was about to get good. People told me this was real and there's no way this could be real. Bye. Bye. I mean, thanks for the bill of goods. I'll just take it and run. That to me tells me that we spent 13 years with that student, like framing it incorrectly the whole time. Right. I I frequently, I've run, I ran a religious school when I was first a rabbi and I kept thinking to myself, we cannot teach anything that we will have to unteach in order to retain their interest and, and connection. And so how do we, Torah stories are very fun to teach kids. Developmentally, it's fun to tell stories. Kids, third, fourth graders, they love to hear a good story. But how do we tell it in such a way that it is just delicious to them and and interesting and whatever, but they're not like at a certain point that, that inevitable, like, who is this? I don't know. (laughs) Or any version of like, just a wait a minute. Yeah. And I think to the other part of his question that was like, why do we teach compassion as a Jewish value and then worship a God that is raging and vengeful? In Torah, a foundational text, I mean, how can you not ask this question? Mm-hmm. It's a really important question. And the question, li- the, the answer lies, well, first of all, just great to muse about the question, but the answer, I think, lies in understanding what the it is and what we're doing with it. Whether or not we ever, like the Indigo Girls, find out what was ever intended for it. And the question with Torah, similarly, is I'm never going to be able to ask the people that, that, that redacted this Torah, and, and there is so much beautiful Torah study on like who those people were. And there, there's a lot of scholarship on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not that mysterious. People think they know the documentary hypothesis about the authorship of Torah is, is a well-known, mm-hmm. I mean, the seminal book was written by Richard Elliott Friedman, teacher at professor at UCSD. I mean, the, they're not, it's not, if you want Torah scholarship about how it happened, how it all came together, who wrote it and why, People have studied that and way smarter people than I am have actually put that in a coherent hypothesis. But I'm a rabbi and what I like to do, no matter who wrote it or why, is is spend a lot of time in the company of this text that I think is the probably the best literary fiction ever written. This reminds me of um, what you're saying about the Torah scholarship of I used to host Passover seders at my house. Me and a bunch of friends, we lived together. We host hosted all these Jewish holidays and stuff at our home. And for one of them, we have this we have this giant green wall in our house, this bright green wall. And we had everyone at the seder. This was like early, like mid two thousands. Um, we had it. We gave everybody a bunch of slips of paper that had a character on it, and it they had basically a tweet length amount of space to write the character's feelings on the different parts of the Seder, right? And so it looked like a little Twitter status update and it had their little picture in a little avatar box. And there was like God and all these different people. And each person at the table was a different character and they had to write it. And then they had to, we all 25 of us had to like put it in the, on the wall on the timeline and the way the conversation was go. And then we, we played it out. I totally forgot we did this whole thing. Oh, that's so but fun. It was, though. it was super fun. But what it did was like, it really showed that like the person who's writing for that specific character can really tailor the story in a, in a very specific and different ways. You know, we had like yeah. a very, I remember like we had a very conservative, like politically conservative guy from Iowa as part of our friend group. And he wrote a very 
staunchly conservative version of Miriam that people like that are very feminist progressive other friends were like Mm-mm. <laughs> just like <laughs> this like we just had this like real throwdown super fun you know Seder table side discussion about it um, and I think that I mean but what other document could you do that with that's what why I was is say. that it's so like amenable the, the richness of it is like I was like yeah sure you could you could do a, this is what fan fiction is Exactly. You know, and it was basically just Tori, uh, Passover, Seder fan fiction, Exodus fan fiction. <laughs> but like, it oh, my had, God, it's brilliant. The dimensions were so broad and so deep and so fun. And only Torah can sustain that. There's just very little other. That that is so ancient and yet so enduring. It, it One has to question the magic of that. And it doesn't have. It can be magic even if you don't like every character. And don't worry about God. We're all just trying to figure out that mystery of the universe. We're just trying to figure it out. And I always like to say that the Torah was the first written record of our people trying to do that. And Mm. our story happening while doing that. And that's what Torah is. Just, it would be good to relax. (laughs) And enjoy. Have some recreational Torah. And really enjoy your Jewish life with these stories and the the incredible mirror that it holds up to our lives today. It's powerful. Welcome back to the quest, everyone. Thanks, Ari. Thank you, Ari. Thanks, Rabbi. <laughs> God. We'll see you next time. We'll see you here. Bye. Bye.